you um <clears throat> I'm on the other end of the cold now. I just have to begin by um I had to put a couple of notes up on the board and I just noticed how exciting this new notice on the bulletin board is. <laughs> Huge group around something about chemical sensitivity or something that probably in your usual ordinary life you would probably not get so excited by. <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of the um, cereal box phenomena here. <laughs> For people who read a lot of books, one feels impoverished without any reading at all. So sometimes practice feels somewhat self-centered or self-oriented. And in actuality, we practice for the sake of ourselves, certainly, and we practice for the sake of all beings as well. And both are completely and totally true at the same time. I want to read a short sutra or discourse of the Buddha's Once the Buddha told his monks the following story. There was once a pair of jugglers who performed their acrobatic feats on a bamboo pole. One day the master said to his apprentice, Now get on my shoulders and climb up the bamboo pole. When the apprentice had done so, the master said, Now protect me well and I will protect you. By protecting and watching each other in that way, we will be able to show our skill, make a good profit, and safely get down from the bamboo pole. But the apprentice said, Not so, master. You, O master, should protect yourself, and I too shall protect myself. Thus self-protected and self-guarded, we shall safely do our feats. This is the right way, said the Blessed One, and spoke further as follows. It is just as the apprentice said, I shall protect myself. In that way, the foundations of mindfulness should be practiced. I shall protect others. In that way, the foundation of mindfulness should be practiced. Caring for oneself, one cares for others. Caring for others, one cares for oneself. And how does one, in caring for oneself, care for others? By the repeated and frequent practice of meditation. And how does one, in caring for others, care for oneself? By patience and forbearance, by a nonviolent and harmless life, by loving kindness and compassion. And you can kind of shorten this sutra into two lines, which are, in caring for oneself, one cares for others. In caring for others, one cares for oneself. They have to be taken together. We can't say, when I care for myself, I am inherently always caring for others. We can't say, when I care for others, I am always inherently caring for myself. They have to go together as a package, and this is what I'd like to speak about tonight. There are three aspects, too, in caring for ourselves, caring for others, in caring for others, caring for ourselves. And these three aspects involve ethics and purifying the heart and wise action. So to just take up these three different aspects of care, of compassion, of love. The first, of course, is ethics, which means refraining from 
harmful action and speech. And of course, when we refrain from harmful action and speech, we are caring very much for others. We're not imposing upon others. We're not hurting others. And at the same time, we're caring for ourselves because our actions are not going to come back to us, back on us, other than in a beneficial way. In other words, the negative consequences are not going to be so. And so we're doing both at the very same time by practicing the precepts, by being very careful in the practice of non-harm, the practice of not taking that which isn't offered to us in a free way, the practice of using our sexual energies in as wise and as skillful, in as kind, in as non-objectifying a way as possible, to really use what, of course, is a very beautiful energy, wisely and kindly, instead of in a way that hurts and harms ourselves and the other person. Really skillfully taking up wise speech and noticing, and this, of course, is a really tough area, and we'll be going into a little bit more specifically tomorrow. But taking up wise speech with intention so that our speech is truthful and kind. Sometimes we could say if all the other precepts are taken care of, this is the one most of us have the most difficulty with. But when we bring attention to wise speech, when our intention is to not harm, our mind is so much quieter automatically our mind is so much quieter. And the fifth precept, of course, being not to hurt ourselves through intoxicants and the misuse of drugs, which, of course, as we know, hurts others as well. One of my teachers said this, Master Sheng Yen, Buddhists believe that whatever we do in this life will plant karmic seeds that will result in our next birth and its conditions. Consequently, we need to be careful of our actions of body, speech, and mind. If we know that at each moment we are creating something for the future, we will be happy. We have the opportunity to make our actions beneficial, so the consequences will be good for us and for others. If we strive at every moment to work selflessly for the good of all beings, including ourselves, then we can truly speak of a new life at every moment. This is a bit of a thrilling idea, the thought of a new life at every moment, which is something that is possible for us in the practice of ethics or integrity. We are offering both ourselves and others the gift of grace, the gift of dignity. We are allowing ourselves in the practice of the precepts to be people that people aren't afraid of, people that other people can trust. And out of this, of course, comes self-trust and comes a sense of self-respect, as well as some degree of security. You know how paranoid the mind can get when we say something that perhaps we really wish we hadn't said, and then we wonder where it went to, where it's going, what kind of life it's going to evolve into. And with all of the precepts, of course, this is so. There's a level of paranoia, of unrest, of agitation, of restlessness that can be replaced by security and ease. 
ease of mind, confidence, and clarity of heart. I worked with someone many years ago who actually was a robber, robbed for a living. And he wanted to know if he could practice. He was very sincere and wanted to know how he could practice meditation. And, you know, I just thought it was going to be really tough unless he changed his occupation. That that, that was probably the fundamental um, aspect of meditation that he had to concentrate on. Because can one imagine sitting on the cushion and expecting to get calm and peaceful and meanwhile, of course, the mind being all over the place and restless and agitated. I mean, you'd have to really shove it down for anything positive to happen. And then, of course, it wouldn't be positive. It would pop up in some way or another. That was an extreme example. <laughs> the second aspect of in caring for ourselves, we care for others in caring for others, we care for ourselves, has a little bit more to do with the first line, in caring for ourselves, we care for others. And this has to do with the realm of meditation, what we've basically been doing here, with purifying the heart, or what is known of as bhavana, training the mind, the patient sense of over and over again, training the mind to be here, to be present, when it wants to be elsewhere. So there's this kind of long-enduring, patient sense that is so essential, over and over again, teaching the mind that it actually is better here than there, wherever there is. It could be said to be our deepest way to care both about ourselves and others. It's the deepest work we can do in our life as human beings. Because it's a process of looking at ourselves directly and honestly from moment to moment. And nobody can do this work for us. I mean, we can and we need to. We need to be open to the help that is available to us. We need to be open to the guidance and the support that is indeed available to us. And at the same time, to recognize that we do do this work, each one of us on our own. And even the Buddha can't, couldn't do it for anyone when the Buddha was alive. It's not possible. No? And this is where caring for oneself is of essence, no? is, is really something that we absolutely have to cherish and hold as being of the utmost importance for both our own life as well as the lives that we touch around us. Because we're the only ones that can care in this way for ourselves as deeply as we need to care. In the practice, of course, what we're doing is we're easing the torments of heart. We're being aware of that which is causing torment inwardly in the heart, that which is creating torment for others, whether we want it to or not. So we're practicing easing these torments. We're actually practicing as well not abandoning ourselves. 
When we're not in the present, when we're lost in the past or in the future, we lose ourselves. There's a moment of abandoning ourselves. In the realm of meditation, we're teaching ourselves to care more deeply, to care more deeply for ourselves and others, and in that process to not abandon ourselves. We're learning so clearly how to care for the difficult elements inwardly, how to care for our anger, our loneliness, our restlessness, our boredom, without rejecting the state of mind that is occurring and without falling into and being overwhelmed by the state of mind that is occurring. In this process, we are developing the confidence in the power, the enormous power in awareness. We trust usually anything other than awareness. We trust the states of mind that arise as being true, as being who we are, as being how things are. And the shift in meditation, the training in meditation, is to trust awareness instead, to trust the capacity to know what's happening rather than what it is that's happening Gently acknowledging each state of heart that arises. Simply knowing what it is is a huge way that we can care for ourselves. Being aware that we can gradually enlarge our capacity to allow that state of mind to be there without having to get rid of it, without having to cling to it, without having to define the state of mind as who we are, without having to define ourselves through the arisings and passings away inwardly. So we can acknowledge, we can enlarge our capacity to allow for, sometimes acceptance seems too big of a word, but we can all allow for, we can let things live without cutting it off, and then very, very gently letting go or letting it let go of us. In this process, we learn so deeply how to welcome every experience that occurs, not just those that we want to be happening, which may be far and few between, (laughs) right? But instead, a radical welcoming of each experience that is occurring because it is our life and because of self-respect, because of respecting that this is our life. This is an aspect of life that deserves our full and complete and loving and compassionate attention. The Buddha said that we're safe when we're in our own domain. And our own domain is the four foundations of mindfulness. We're safe, we're cared for, we're caring for ourselves when we're with any of the four foundations of mindfulness. And the four foundations of mindfulness cover all aspects of the body and the mind. Being aware of the body, seeing if we can simply know that there is this body from moment to moment, without adding or subtracting, without getting caught or lost in ideas about the body. Instead, there is this body, knowing it clearly, very simple, very clear. Being aware that 
The second foundation is that of feelings or Vedana, being aware there is this pleasant feeling happening right here and now. There is this unpleasant feeling occurring right here and right now. There is this feeling I really can't define, neither pleasant nor unpleasant, possibly called neutral feeling that is occurring right here and right now. We can be aware of the third foundation of mindfulness, which is that of thoughts and emotions. And we can know, ah, there is this thought occurring, happening right here and right now, this bubble of energy that if I follow is going to become a big world that is going to pop at some point or another. Part of our practice certainly is popping, bubble after bubble after bubble, world after world after world, self-created. Being aware of the emotional life is also part of the third foundation of mindfulness. Being aware there is this grief occurring, there is this irritation happening right here and right now. Is it possible to care for it? Is it possible to be with it fully? Is it possible to welcome it, knowing that it has a life to it? It begins, it has a life, and it ends. And the fourth foundation of mindfulness has to do with being aware of the laws of experience, how things operate, how things work, the fact that everything that arises, although we are all the time tempted to see it as self, to see phenomena as who we are. The fourth foundation allows us to look differently and to notice things arising on their own. Our work being simply to know, to allow for, to let go. But recognizing that we have no control over the arising. Things arise on their own, out of conditions coming together. And we can understand this and be mindful of this law of experience. We can be aware of impermanence. We can be mindful that things arise and things pass away. And we can learn to respond with compassion to our experiences. It's very difficult to be present with what is happening without compassion. It feels sometimes quite bare and quite dry and quite overwhelming. But when we bring the richness of compassion in, and when we learn more and more about what compassion really is, it allows us to be with our experience with a great deal of open-heartedness. And compassion actually allows for the emergence of wisdom because we're with it in an appropriate way rather than in a harsh way. Compassion means caring for the experience that is arising. And some compassion phrases may be, may I care for this pain, may I care for this sorrow, may I care for this joy, May I care for whatever it is that's occurring. When we're extending compassion to others, may you be free from your pain. May you be free from your sorrow. It's that sense of responding and allowing the heart to be moved by suffering, allowing the heart to tremble, to be moved in the face of suffering. Compassion is a sense of non-separation 
rather than being lost in reactivity and aversion. It allows us to be fully and wholly with our experience as it is, just as a really good parent would be with a child. As, as one's, one's imagined parent would be with a child. Sometimes you have to use a stretch of imagination with this. But just it's, it's good to imagine it and to have a sense of that because in practice, to some extent, we are reparenting ourselves. Thank goodness it is possible. But we are reparenting ourselves. So we have to try to get a sense of what that means of what it is like when we really care for someone and really want to alleviate their pain and suffering and then see if we can bring that very same energy for ourselves, which allows us to know more deeply the pain and suffering of others. It's kind of a circle. you know. I mean, we're always doing our best. So when we're facing the pain and suffering of someone that we love very deeply or, or that we are able to help in some way or feel moved by, in some way, we do our best. And if we're not really open and sensitive and aware of our own suffering, we're going to always be guessing. You know, we're going to try to take care, but we're also going to be guessing what caring really means. Whereas if we can know in ourselves as well, then it allows our caring to be so much more deepened, so much more real, and for us to have so much more confidence in the ways that we try to alleviate suffering in this world. Caring is an openness. Compassion is an openness, a tenderness, a willingness to feel. It's actually a willingness to feel instead of our usual style of being intimidated by our feelings. Many times in the face of suffering, we find ourselves falling into anger. Anger because of suffering, anger because we're angry, angry because we're afraid, angry because our mind isn't cooperating. We find ourselves falling into fear, being intimidated by a feeling, being intimidated by this energetic swoosh in the body, being afraid of a feeling. We find ourselves falling into grief or self-pity. And these are all ways of separating ourselves from our experience. So learning about compassion allows us to be fully with our experience, without cringing, without flinching. And again, to emphasize, it's a caring for. It's an attending to. It's a receptivity allowing ourselves to be moved by the suffering within ourselves, by the suffering that we experience in others. The recognition of suffering in ourselves allows us to learn about other people's suffering. The recognition of compassion leads to compassion for others quite naturally because when we feel something very fully, we see, ah, this fear is just like your fear. It's no different. It's the same. Now, there's, a, there's a unity there. There's a, a bonding there. There's something that is common between us instead of separating and alienating, which is oftentimes the way we feel when we're suffering very strongly. The practice 
of training the heart or purifying the heart has an enormous effect on others as well as on ourselves. Buddha Dasa, a Thai forest master who died some years ago, but whom I was fortunate to meet, used to say that purifying the heart from the torments of heart, from greed, hatred, and delusion, is a public health measure. (laughs) In other words, we can't help but spread ourselves around. We may not want to, and we may want to be invisible in life, and we may not think that we have as much power as we have, but each one of us has enormous power and can't help but share both that which is of benefit and that which is not with those around us, with this world. It's inevitable. Thich Nhat Hanh, of course, talks about people coming over during the time that people were coming over from Vietnam on the very rickety boats. And he speaks about how when there was one calm and serene person on any given boat, the boat had a real chance of getting where it was trying to get to. Whereas if everybody on the boat was really upset and really panicked and really, really lost, then very easily the boat would not get where it was going to, would fall apart. So just that that sense of um, one calm person. And in meditation, we're attempting to be that one calm person (laughs) on our own boats as well as the boats of others. Some some years ago, there was this interesting thing that happened here at IMS where someone practiced for about a month and then she had to leave some kind of family emergency. And she thought, oh, nothing has happened. I've had a really terrible time. And no glimmers of hope, no glimmers of peace. I'm leaving, and everybody else gets to stay, and, you know, this is really just a write-off. And then shortly after that, she happened to actually be on a boat. I remember this story because of the Thich Nhat Hanh story. She was actually on a boat, and a storm came up, and everybody started freaking out, and there was a danger of the boat sinking, and she was calm. She was calm, and she was amazed at herself. And she actually was able to hold a great deal of her family together in that instance instead of joining in. And it was just such a shock to her because she thought nothing had happened. So to those of you on this retreat who think that nothing has happened, (laughs) this is a a story of hope. (laughs) Wise action is the third aspect of caring. In caring for ourselves, we care for others. In caring for others, we care for ourselves that I'd like to speak about. And this, of course, has to do with applying our understanding. It's so important to apply our understanding, to not wait until we think that we're totally free or even a little bit free, but really just to apply any degree of understanding that we think we have. Sometimes there can be this really painful place in practice where we know something and yet we're not able to live it yet. We know it so deeply. The same thing has happened so many times and yet we find ourselves so 
disappointed and demoralized because over and over again we find ourselves falling into the same habit pattern. We find ourselves having to dig ourselves out of the same hole. What helps is simply to let it go. I mean, forgive oneself and just simply um, try to sustain one's confidence. But also, in places where you have a chance to take that chance. Because there are times in this phase of practice when one knows but can't totally apply it. There are, for all of us, little places where we can apply it. And maybe there are places, those are the places we don't really want to apply it because we know we can, but it's difficult. And it's really taking a risk. It's really taking a leap of faith. But I think it's so important every time we get a chance to take that leap of faith, even if it doesn't have to do with what we're so intensely suffering about. You know, even if it has to do with something someone that we're living with points out to us and we say, oh, that's not anything. I'm really upset about this, you know, or, or whatever it is. But to actually take that seriously and practice with it a little bit and see what happens. Because I think that helps when there is this gap. And then inevitably the gap does fill itself in in applying our understanding whenever we get a chance. Seeing if we can respond in life less out of reactivity and more out of wisdom and compassion. The Dharma deeply nourishes us. It deeply nourishes us. As we become full, full with the Dharma, it becomes natural to to give. And we do practice our unity with all beings through our capacity to respond with compassion and with wisdom. We can practice in the midst of our work life, in the midst of our family life, in the midst of our life with friends when traveling, And extraordinary things happen when we take the chance and try. Let me just read you a story. This is someone named Anonymous. (laughs) I work as an internet producer and have a superior in my company who simply despises me. In fact, I was thinking about quitting my job because he is so rough on me. My husband, who is a very strong meditator, told me I should consider this guy my teacher since he was giving me a great opportunity to develop patience and compassion. So I decided to bite the bullet and stay. Recently, the two of us had a showdown that turned into an interdepartmental war. Before I began Buddhist practice, I would have tried to outwit him, beat him at his game somehow. But since becoming involved in Buddhism, I tried to see if I could practice compassion. After a lot of angry words had been tossed about, someone finally suggested, why don't we go around the table and say what it would take for all of us to get along? For some reason, I had to talk first, and I didn't have a clue what to say. But suddenly, this came out of me. You know, it's not about writing a memo. It's not about a meeting. It's something much more intangible, like coming into each other's office and leaving the work stuff on the side and just talking on a human level, because we all essentially want the same thing. We want the project to be successful. We want a happy environment. We just need to drop our animosity toward each other. 
Suddenly, to everybody's surprise, this officer who despised me started talking about his mother, how they hadn't spoken in ten years, and how they were now in relationship therapy together. <laughs> we were all quite shocked, but I just kept looking at him and practicing compassion. It's clear to me now that the atmosphere changed in the room simply because I wasn't reverting to my normal hostile reaction. It also helped for me to think of the situation as impermanent. I remember telling myself, "He is not forever. I am not forever. Nothing here is forever." Instead, here's an opportunity to make this moment mean something for myself and for my colleagues, rather than hanging on to a position of combat. At the end of the meeting, one of the accountants started. Teasing everybody, saying "Oh, I love you guys," as if to make fun of the situation, but it really did describe the place we had all gotten to. What's amazing is that these are not people who are into emotions at all; they are into demographics. <laughs> In practicing acting with wisdom and compassion, also. We can get quite caught up in our kind of dharma delusions. You know, sometimes because we've heard about impermanence. If this is your first retreat, it might be the first time, but for everybody else, <laughs> a lot we've heard about impermanence. And so one can kind of use this principle of impermanence non-correctly, knowing that because things are permanent, it will pass. And so, in the meantime, instead of opening and bringing compassion in, trying to grit one's teeth until, of course, it passes. This is an incorrect use of the principle of impermanence. We can also, at times, get quite deluded.、Um, probably about twenty years now, must have been at least twenty years. I、um, was mugged on the streets of Boston. And I had just come out. The background of this is that I had just come out of a three-month retreat, and of course, on the three-month retreat, it was here, and it was just like this over and over again. The encouragement to let go. So the person who mugged me came out from a dark alleyway, and he started kind of hitting me. But he really, for me, used the wrong words. He kept saying, "Let go, let go, let go." <laughs> So truly and honestly, I thought he was telling me to let go of my greed and my hatred and my delusion. So I held my pocketbook, you know, more tightly to my chest. This is big time delusion. <laughs> so, just to, just to tell you the end of the story, what happened is I finally realized what was happening. Reality set in, and I screamed really, really loudly, so loudly that my Throat was sore the next day, and I scared him, and he left, and I actually was able to keep my pocketbook, which was not the intention to begin with. I mean, I absolutely would have given it to him if he had told me what he wanted. In our practice, from a self-centered orientation to an other-centered orientation. You know, sometimes we think this when we hear things like "practice for the benefit of all beings" and "ignore yourself and only 
love others, this kind of teaching, which of course can be a powerful teaching. But if we misinterpret itself, it's not so great and it's not so healthy, not at all. Because our movement in practice is not from being self-centered to being centered in others. When we're centered in others, we can so easily get caught in other people's fears and desires. You know, be be trying to let go of our own desires, be trying to let go of our own fears, and at the same time, serving the desires of others, serving the fears of others, which is very, very different than the work of kindness and of wisdom. So what we're doing, actually, is moving to a totally open orientation, not from a self-orientation, which is where we begin, to an other-centered orientation, but instead from a self-centered orientation, which is where we begin, to an open orientation, where we're available to life, where we're aware of suffering wherever it exists, in ourselves as well as in others. And there is that movement, that enormous desire, wholesome desire to alleviate it. The Buddha went through a transformation from self-conscious thinking to openness. And our path is the very same as the Buddha's, the very same path. When we look at the ocean, we see that it's exactly like our minds, that there's no way to manipulate the ocean The ocean is wide and vast and clear and just the way it is. When we look at the sky, it's the same way. Here, it's fantastic to go outside, especially at night. Um, Some of you have been doing this. And being aware of the dark sky, aware of the stars, of how bright they are in the country, and aware of the space between the stars, that vast, endless Um, expansiveness that is measureless. And this reveals to us our minds. This is really great uh, kind of way to see one's own mind is to look at the sky, to have a sense of that measurelessness, that enormous openness that can hold everything. We see that the sky is vast and out of our control. When the mind is open, when the heart is open, there is a softness, there is a wonder, there is an awe, and there is a connection. There is a connectedness with all of life happening right here and now. Not the past, not the future. An awe in life, a wonder in life happening right here and right now. And you could say that this is love. You could say that this is a definition of love, which is being with things as they are, being with ourselves as we are, whether we're pleasant or unpleasant or neutral to ourselves, being with others as they are, whether they are the way we want them to be or not, which opens us up to a very beautiful vulnerability to life. Self-consciousness is what stops this, stops this vulnerability, stops this wonder, stops this flow, enslaved by our own thoughts. Every time we see this and let go, 
this wonder is available to us in the here and now. Our practice is to see what gets in the way of fulfilling our Buddha nature, to see what is in the way, to bring care, wisdom, and compassion to whatever it is, and to allow it to release itself into the vastness of the sky, the clear skies of the mind. Practice in no way has to do with changing ourselves into something else or somebody else. It is over and over again a glimpse into who we are. There is no rest that we can find in I-centered thinking. We spend so much time worrying about ourselves, worrying about who we are and what we'll become and what we need and what we have to have and who we've hurt and on and on and on and on. And some of this we can let go with great freedom and with great ease. Our yearning as human beings is towards peace, towards union, and towards intimacy. It's very interesting. In some old Chinese texts, you know how sometimes Dharma um, stories end and he or she was enlightened? I mean, this is the best ending. (laughs) In these old Chinese texts, it ends and she was intimate. Mm. And he was intimate. Instead of and he was enlightened, she was enlightened. And so clearly, intimacy with life, intimacy with our environment, with ourselves deeply, with others, is equated with enlightenment, synonymous with self-realization. The opposite of intimacy is self-consciousness. If we're caught in concepts, if we're caught in self-preoccupation, it is not possible to be intimate. Self and other dissolves into the open skies of the mind. This is a short poem by Rumi. Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. May all beings have ease of mind. May all beings have comfort of heart. May all beings live in love and in compassion. Let's just sit for a moment or two.